The secret to life is to realize life doesn't belong to us. It is a gift from God. How many of you, when you woke up this morning and opened your eyes, said, thank you, Jesus, for letting me open my eyes to have another breath? And as you walked out of your bedroom and you flipped that light, which is a first world convenience, how many of you thought, praise the Lord, we have electricity? And as you turn the water on, you go, yes, we have water. We have hot water. And then you made your way into the bathroom. That's a chronological issue at 55. That's where you go first. <laughs> and then you were able to flush that toilet and think, yes, we have plumbing. Then you make your way into the kitchen and you push that button and all of a sudden coffee starts dripping. Everything we have is a gift. When you open that cupboard and you pull out that mug and you go, that, that's a gift. Those keys that I have hanging there to start that truck is a gift. And so as we ponder again the narrative of Christmas, and as we understand Christmas, we should be people of appreciation, but people that live with great generosity because we're so blessed. We've been made in the image of God, and through the kindness of Jesus that was born some 2,000 years ago, in that small Judean village, that he would willfully walk the Via Della Rosa, that he would die a criminal's death on the cross, and that he would conquer death, hell, and the grave, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We have so much to be thankful for. Now today, as we continue in this four-week series of understanding Christmas, I want to talk about the thrill of hope. The thrill of hope. And we'll sing here in a bit, silent night, holy night. But there's that phrase in that song that says, the thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, oh, hear the angel voices, thrill of hope. So what does hope mean? Last week, we kind of unpackaged peace. The week before that, I talked about uh, the concept of Savior and Lord. But when you hear the word hope, what comes to your mind? In our society, most people define hope as wishful thinking. It's not hope. But Chad, it's wishful thinking. Uh, it would be used like this. I hope something good will happen. I hope we win the ball game. I hope I get a good grade on my test. I hope I get a new iPad for Christmas, or I hope, whatever the gift might be. And the way we use the word hope oftentimes is all attached to wishful thinking, where you are the subject of it. You are going to benefit from it. And so a lot of times when you hear people use the word hope, it's all about them. It's all about what they can benefit. But it's so much deeper. I read a definition from a hurting teenager that said, Hope is wishing for something you know ain't going to happen. Defeat. Hopelessness. And if there's anything that defines our culture and our families and the neighborhoods and the communities in which we live, it would be that we live in a culture that is flooded with hopelessness. Where is there hope? People are constantly rushed. People are habitually late. 
Why? And people feel oftentimes just overwhelmed and overloaded and life is just too fast for them and pressured, exhausted. Sound like anybody in the room today? And you go, where is their hope? Some of us walk in here and we feel forgotten or ignored by God. God cares about other people, but why all the pain and suffering and turmoil? Why has it come to me? And if we're not careful, we feel like God has dumped on us. He has forgotten us. And when we start to look at our own narrative, we go, where is their hope? Man can go about 40 days without food. He can go about three days without water. They say he can exist for about eight minutes without air. But I believe it's impossible to live even a second without hope. I believe hope is one of those things that as we walk in here today and as we contemplate the Christmas narrative, each and every one of us are starving for hope. So here's a premise thought. Grab your bulletin. Take a few notes with me today. But here's a premise thought for you. You will never possess what you're unwilling to pursue. You'll never possess what you're not willing to pursue. So you have to ask the question, what am I pursuing with my life? What is my life aimed at? What determines the direction that I go in day in and day out with my life? God wants us to experience hope. Let me define it for you. The Bible defines hope in this way. It's a confident anticipation of a favorable outcome under God's guidance. You go, what, 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 what does that mean? It means that I have this confidence as I anticipate this. What God has done in the past guarantees my participation in what God will do in the future. So when I sit back and start to contemplate and read those stories of old, from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and I see the faithfulness of God and the dependability of God of how he worked with Adam and how he worked with Abraham and David and Daniel, and the beat goes on, and I see the faithfulness of God, hope is God-centered, not me-centered. It is objective that God becomes the object of it, and I start to look and think, and conclude what God has done in the past guarantees that I get to participate in what he's going to do in the future. Because I'm under the blood, because I've entered into a relationship with Christ, because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, because my life is now centered and surrendered to Christ Jesus, I can wake up in the morning and think, I have hope that my God who has been faithful in the past, who is faithful today, will be faithful in the future my outcome is going to be favorable because of him. It doesn't mean that pain will be eliminated. It doesn't mean that difficulties are going to be off your plate. But it means that you'll have a peace and a power and a presence of the Almighty that dwells within you that will help you overcome whatever the adversity you face is. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Give you a couple of hope verses here. But as Paul concludes this writing to the believers in Rome, he says, Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. We hear the words peace and joy thrown around, but he says, May the God of all hope, the one who has been faithful in the past, that guarantees that you get to participate with him in the future, may the God of all hope, may he fill you with joy 
peace in believing. Belief means to be persuaded to action. That's the Greek word there. So I, I am persuaded to act and submit and follow your leadership, Jesus. It guarantees that I can be flooded and filled with hope. It's not situational. It transcends that. He goes on to say, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Trevor talked last week about being in Spain, and less than 1% of the people in Spain where he's located are evangelical Christians. They're hopeless. They're starving for hope. They're longing for peace. They're looking for joy. And it's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ 24-7. We're not talking about just adding Christ to the equation. We're talking about him being established as master, ruler, and authority. So what is hope? It's having confidence in God coupled with the fact that I will persevere in faith. I will stay with it. I won't throw the towel in. I'm going to stay with it every day. If there's one thing that Barb and I have offered our kids, it's not perfection. It's not that we've done everything right. We've jacked it up. But the one thing I know for 27 years that we offered our kids was we offered them hope. We offered them hope. We pressed into Jesus, and we've never looked back regretting going, you know, we, 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 we should have made more money. We should have spent more time trying to, to make more uh, money and build a bigger house. The one thing we look back on is, where could we have provided you guys with more hope? Where could we have pointed you to more peace and the power and the presence of Christ? So if faith and our journey with Jesus is the engine, hope is the fuel. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. We have faith, but we've got to have hope, believing, God, you're going to do something favorable for your glory and my good. That's the reason so many people, I think, gravitate toward the Romans 8, 28, when he says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who have been called according to his purpose. We're pressing in. It's for your glory, but it's for our good. And so we have hope. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, he extended kindness and compassion to you when you were living in misery. He has caused us to be born again, not to a dead hope, not to a distant hope, but to a living hope that can be experienced 24-7. He goes on to say, he goes on to say, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, when Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave, it is one of the greatest declarations that man will ever know. It gives us hope. So I was contemplating that when you don't have hope, when you're without hope, life has no meaning. Life has no purpose. Life has no foundation. Without hope, well, what's the purpose of being here? Eat, drink, and be merry. Get sloshed tonight. Medicate, sedate. Chase whatever the world says because it has no meaning. But how does that work out for you? Without hope, death seems to be victorious. If you have no hope, then it seems that death is the great winner. Without hope, 
But the person who places their faith, their trust, their confidence in Jesus Christ and yields to him and really presses in can live with this overflowing hope. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that we can ask or think according to the power that now lives inside of us, that's hope. I've got something worth living for. So I was writing out like living a life of God-style purpose leads to encouragement. When I'm living life according to the purposes of God, man, it encourages my soul. Encouragement leads to hope. Hope leads to change. Change leads to a better future. And a better future will change your destiny. I want to have a great destiny. How does it happen? I get plugged into Yeshua Jesus, and I go, I'm living a life of purpose. That purpose now leads me every day, that I can be encouraged every day. I'm living for something bigger than me. It leads to change. God's bringing about radical transformation and change. I'm like, yes, and the hope of Christ will not disappoint, for the love of Jesus is being poured out. That's what Romans 5 says. We rejoice in our tribulations because it brings about uh, this perseverance and proven character, and it brings about hope, this anticipation of a favorable outcome that what God has done in the past guarantees that I get to be a beneficiary in the future if I anchor in with Jesus. How many of y'all are looking for hope today? How many of you want it today? Yeah, I want to live a life of hope. So if we desire to be spiritually healthy and if we really desire to walk with God in an intimate way, we've got to be filled with hope. Now, Hebrews chapter 12 is an incredible verse. Hebrews 12 is one of my favorite go-tos. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and then he says this, then he says this, let us lay aside, which literally means let us get rid of. Let us cast it away. Because we have such a great cloud of witnesses, meaning those who followed Christ and stayed with him and pressed in, Hebrews 11 is that great hall of faith. He gets to 12. We've got this great group of godly people that we can look to. Let us lay aside and get rid of every weight and let us get rid of the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the shame and ridicule of the, cro uh, of the cross, and he's now set down at the right hand of the Father. I start to contemplate this, and I'm like, so what are some of the keys of experiencing, Tim, the hope of Christ? Well, one of the things we've got to do is we've got to get rid of hope killers. We, we need to get rid of things in our lives, weight as well as sin. Now, I'm just going to hit the weight piece of it with you today. But some of us have sin in our lives that's tearing us down, that we continue to pacify and entertain, that is absolutely crippling. But some of us have some weights in our life we need to get rid of. We need to eliminate some weights. I want to give you three. I could give you 103, but for the sake of time, I'll give you three. But some of us would be wise to get rid of some of these negative people that are in our lives. 
Some of us would be wise to get rid of those bricks that weigh you down that are nothing more than critical people. Some people have concluded that their spiritual gift is criticism. You ever met anybody that way? Now, I've studied 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4, and I can promise you that criticism is not a spiritual gift. Some people have concluded, I've got the gift of criticism, and it is my job to help the Holy Spirit solve the problems of the world. I'm like, how's that working for you? And I started writing stuff down like, the critic is known to give unwanted advice and just complain. You got anybody like that in your life? People that if they want your opinion, they'll give it to you. They know how to solve your dilemma. And these kind of people I have to push off of my plate. I'll love you, but I'm not a dump. And I'm not a garbage disposal. And you're not just going to come and dump my way. I will pull the plug on that in a heartbeat because God's called me to lay aside and get rid of unnecessary weight. And there's some people you go, wow, what's up? Critics find fault and issues with almost anything. It doesn't matter what the topic, what the conversation, they're going to come in, not because they've got a critical eye and they're able to discern, but they have a critical spirit. All they know how to do is dog and damn, and they're going to come in and they're going to shred it. And you're going, why do I always need a nap after leaving that person? You got some of them like that? They assume the position of expert. They're all-knowing pretty much on any subject you bring up. And I call them toppers, which means whatever story you share, they're going to top your story with their story because their story is better than your story. And that was a term we used to use all the time in the locker room. It's like, hey, dude, check out what happened. And all of a sudden you're going, hey, topper, we don't care what your story is. And there's people like that. Oh, They're going to find fault. They're going to criticize and I look at that with emotional people, people that are always dramatic. I don't have a lot of time for a bunch of drama queens in my life or drama kings. Now, I love Jesus, but I ain't got time for it. I had a distant relative of my dad recently. He has been sending all this stuff on Facebook like private message. I don't even like social media. I use it where I can put sermons and different thoughts out there. So if I don't respond to something you send me, it's not because you don't matter. It's just I don't use it for that. But this dude has been sending me all this stuff. And I just sent a note saying, would you please quit sending me all this stuff? And he writes back, well, I'm a cousin of your dad. I don't care who you're related to. I just ask you to please stop sending me all this stuff. I thought you were a man of the cloth. And I go and delete him immediately. Who I am and what I do is not on trial. I just ask you to stop sending me the nonsense. You got anybody in your life like that? Maybe during this holiday season, one of the greatest gifts you could give yourself is just to slide that right off your plate. And you don't have to eat it anymore. Here would be a second thing. Unnecessary guilt. Now, some of you walk in here today and you're still wallowing in the guilt of the past. And I can tell you right now, guilt will rob you of joy and peace and hope. Some of you have made some uh, decisions and had some choices 
way back. And other people want to keep you as a hostage for what you did. But you've come to believe, 1 John 1, 9, that if you confess your sin, God's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But there's some people wanting you to live in the guilt of yesterday and the shame of yesterday. When you look at guilt, it's like, look at all that I did. Now, something in my theology had to get to the place where I believed that as far as the east was from the west, Danny, so far had he removed my iniquity from me. And I believe that when God looks at me, he doesn't see me through the wretched sin that I did in the past. He sees me through the blood of Christ. Jesus has become my mediator. There's only one man between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is my advocate. And so now when the enemy throws up guilt or anybody else, I can say I'm under the blood and my new king says I'm forgiven. But some of you, you come in here and you're like, I've got this guilt. I've got this unnecessary guilt. I haven't measured up. I've made resolutions. I've made decisions. I, I haven't followed through or I did some jacked up stuff. And you're living in such guilt and shame and God is going, let it go. Let, let it go. Nail it to the cross. Let it go. Believe that when I died for you, I canceled out all that old debt. And if we can learn to move into that, it would cause us to walk out of the self-imposed prison that many of us stay in. And we would become effective for the kingdom. Here's the third one. Twisted thinking patterns. I had to have my mind renewed. There was a lot inside of me when I came to faith in Christ that had to be totally eliminated. But there was a lot of renewal that had to go on. Now, I, I can be around people and, uh, again, be in with family and a group of people yesterday I mean, I look at some going, oh, my God. You live with that thought process every day. You live in that habitual defeat every day. I am so glad I'm not you. <laughs> I'm no better than you. But when I came to faith in Christ, memorizing Romans 12, 2 Corinthians 10, Philippians 4, I wasn't doing it because I was preaching in front of a group. But Romans 12, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm like, I got to get my mind clean. 2 Corinthians 10, taking every thought captive mind to the obedience of Christ. Philippians 4, whatever's pure, right, holy, lovely, excellent, praiseworthy. Let your mind dwell on these things. And the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind. So I had some jacked up thinking patterns. And I had some twisted, negative, vile patterns going on. But I really believe that 32 years later, after walking with Jesus, he can transform any mind in this room. I believe that you've been given the mind of Christ if you're a believer. I believe that you can freely discern and appraise the things of God. So what we think about determines who we become. John Maxwell, John Ortberg, a couple of my favorite writers, kind of combined some of their thoughts together. But listen to what they said. Now think about this. Your mind will think about whatever you expose it to. What are you exposing your mind to? What enters your mind repeatedly will be revealed in your character in life. I watch people's character. I watch whether people follow through. I watch what comes out of people's mouths. I watch how people live. And what they're telling me is what they're exposing their minds to and their hearts to and their values. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can listen to somebody talk just a little bit. 
whether it's vile, whether it's a victim, whatever, and you go, you're telling me a lot about what's inside of you. The impact of exposure is so important to our minds. What am I allowing my mind to be saturated with? Now, here's something interesting, Teresa. The events you attend, the events you attend, where are you going? What are the playgrounds you're going to? I'm not against going to see a concert, but what are you exposing yourself to? The materials you read. What do you read? What do you allow your mind to be fixed on in regards to your pleasure reading? The events you attend, the materials you read, the music you hear. Listen to all this gangster rap stuff and see if it doesn't want you to make you want to go out and do something vile. Listen to some of these twisted country lyrics and see if you don't want to get hammered and hook up with every chick in town tonight. What are you listening to? I get to choose what I listen to. Make sense to you? As a parent, it's like, you're not listening to that. That's a bunch of crap. It's no good for you spiritually, mentally, emotionally. We're not playing that game right there. But then you've got to take ownership of your thoughts, the images that you watch. What am I allowing my eyes to be exposed to? Because all of these have a way of shaping the fantasies that contribute to what the mind wants to do. So some, Teresa's here, my friend Tanya was in the first service. They didn't, they didn't have a TV growing up. It's like we, we didn't even have a TV. But listen to me. You can eliminate TV. You can eliminate music. And if you've got negative thinking, critical people constantly chirping, it's worse than anything you would have watched. So what am I filling my mind with? Because I believe with all my heart that whatever I constantly put into my heart and mind is going to guarantee where I'm going in the future. What is the weights that I need to eliminate? There's certain things I'm like, I can't watch that. Because biblical hope that God offers transcends adversity. But you've got to make sure that it transcends activity that you're allowing into your life that can take you down. I promise you. And so when you start to look, it's like circumstances don't make us, they reveal us. Circumstances don't make me who I am. They just reveal who I am. And all of us are going to go through times where we get exposed for what we really think, what we really believe, and what our values are. I was sharing in the first service. Little Rachel comes up here and does the announcements. Little Rachel is running our preschool, working with kids' ministry. She does so much on campus. She's such a key part of this team. She didn't want some of the stuff that she went through. At the end of 2016, she didn't want her husband to bolt. But he does. And then he remarries. This is the first Christmas now, after the dust has kind of settled, if you will, that he's got the kids for the last few days, and he's going to have them all the way up until Christmas Day. She's never been without her kids. But can I tell you something? I've walked with that little girl. And circumstances are not making her because the hope of Christ inside of her is trumping the pain that the enemy wants to throw at her. And you're one of my heroes. When I've watched you over these last months and you walked up here today, I'm like, nobody knows that her heart's hurting, but her hope in Christ and believing that God is good, even in the midst of it, is giving you courage to keep walking, baby girl. You keep walking. We're proud of you. So when you start to think through it, 
I hear people say, man, he's just going through a midlife crisis. No, you're going through a contentment identity crisis. Where is your contentment found? Where are you trying trying to find love and acceptance and worth and significance and security in your life? The hope of Christ. I prayed with a guy that is starting to really experience the gospel. But my buddy Jeremy, Jeremy, it's amazing, was going to a small group with Danny and Krista. Was Jeremy really locked in? No. But Amanda was starting to get locked in. But he starts hanging out with y'all. And Jeremy starts getting fired up and drives the stake in the ground to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. God starts changing him. All of a sudden, an entire row of people this morning, Jeremy had invited a guy and a gal. They were here. That guy and gal invited this dude named Gordy. Gordy, a few weeks ago, when Dustin shared, Gordy came up, tears streaming down his face saying, I've got to know Jesus. What what happened? It was one dude, Jeremy, because of the obedience of Danny and Krista having a small group, that he sat there and Danny counseled with him, and Jeremy goes, it's time for me to get serious. He became faithful because of the hope that he had, and he started sharing this hope with family and friends, and Gordy became the recipient of it. Dustin, we talk about this. Your obedience in walking with Jesus and you being flooded with hope, you sharing your story could change somebody else's narrative if you're willing to do it. When a person flooded with hope encounters a hopeless person and you're able to share the joy that you have, what you do could help change somebody else's destiny. Jesus is our throw of hope. Jesus is the narrative. Close you with this. So how do I keep hope alive in my life? That's something we should ask. How do I keep the hope of the gospel centered and alive in my life? I would say this. I've got to stay refreshed every day. I've got to stay refreshed. Nobody does well running on empty. None of us do. And, and I use the four-tire approach. I've got to keep these tires balanced. I've got to keep our, uh, air in these tires. But my tires are PMSE. And I'm looking going, it's physical. It's mental. It's spiritual. It's emotional. You know as well as I do. If you let one of those tires run low, even the physical, it can jack up your ride. So what you eat, what you put in your body, and I realize that we're going to have a lot of people in sugar comas over the next few days. Okay? I understand that. But taking ownership of that diet, because what you eat and what you put in your system will determine sometimes how well you rest and how well you sleep, making sure that you exercise making sure that you keep that tire rotated right and running right. And then you start to look at the mental. What am I reading? What am I exposing my mind to? Am I really becoming a critical thinker? I want to continue to read, as I've shared with you many times. I want people here drinking out of a flowing stream, not a stagnant pond, which requires, Richard, we've got to read. We've got to study. There's more stuff that we can learn. I want to stay mentally sharp. I caught a plane Monday. I flew out to Salt Lake City. I met with a group Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. There is a non-for-profit called Fighting the New Drug. And I had read some stuff on it. And with some other guys, we wanted to go and and take a a look at what are they doing. Fightthenewdrug.org is a non-for-profit 
that's really trying to confront or bring awareness to the porn epidemic here in America. How porn is absolutely annihilating people. How the images and all this stuff. And so I sat down. I read a ton of stuff before I went out there. Just looking at provenmen.org, Covenant Eyes. Started looking at Focus on the Family, these different sites. What are they saying? What's out there? What can we do to help that next generation understand the ruins of this epidemic? Is there hope? Where do we point them? Is there power to overcome it? So I spent Monday, Tuesday, and got back Wednesday. But I sat there, and I was like, I want to stay educated in critical areas that could help us be as godly as we can, but to help other people prevent the pitfalls that the world's going to throw at them. Make sense? Physical, mental, spiritual. I'll dive into that here in a second. But even the emotional. How am I doing emotionally? Am I staying in check? If you will take personal inventory and look at those four tires daily and keep them rotated and keep enough air in each one, I promise you it will change the way you do life. Stay refreshed. Second thought would be this. Have a spiritual growth plan. Who needs a spiritual growth plan? All of us. Tim, I don't even know how to do one. Email me. Email Nick, Steve, Dustin, Joe, whoever, Rick, going, would you help me? I promise you, you can Google Biblical Christ-centered spiritual growth plans. Dallas Willard stuff, Foster, other things are out there. I need to have a plan. I need to stay with a plan. I need to stay consistent. If you're going to stay, I'm telling you, alive with the hope of Christ in your narrative right now, you've got to have a spiritual growth plan. Intimacy with God through spiritual disciplines, word, prayer, fellowship, and community, there's nothing that will replace that. I promise you, I started looking at this going, if we share our faith with others, it's amazing how much that does for us in our journey. It blows my mind. This is not a guilt and shame trip, but I'm just telling you, it blows my mind of how many people that attend this fellowship, they listen to the word of God, they're taught and trained, and we're seeking to disciple you, but it amazes me that so many people in this church that have been there a year, two years, and three years have never shared their faith with anybody else. My flight on the way back, I'm sitting with a lady in her 70s. And uh, where are you from? Where do you live? Whatever we start talking. I knew she probably had Mormon background, but I was able to share a Christ-only approach with her. We didn't argue. We didn't fight. She shared with me where she was coming from. But every day, well, you get paid to do it. No. No, no, no. It's the passion of my life. Every day you'll have an opportunity to share Christ with somebody. And so you start to look at it going, that's part of my spiritual growth plan. Mentor a new believer. There's so many people that are young in the faith that you have an opportunity to pour into. There was a guy in the first service named Blake that came to Christ about six weeks ago. Now Blake, he had a crazy background. But Blake prayed to receive Christ on my back porch. And I looked at Blake that day before he left and I said, all right, give me your email address. And he did. And I sent Blake, welcome to the family. I've got a document that we put together that's about a 10-page thing that explains, hey, what it means to be a part of the family of God in a simple way. Then I sent him a study on salvation, one on assurance, one on lordship, and one on baptism. And Blake came up to me days later and he said, dude, you have no clue how much that helped me because I didn't know what to do next. What's the next step? And there's so many people that come to faith, that come to church, and they're looking going, what's my next step? 
And Dustin and I and our staff, we're committed to seeing you like never before over 2018 take those next steps and become more involved in the game. You can do it. I remember 25 years ago, we were so excited. Man, Barbara's going to have our first child. I'm like, yes. And then she's born. And I'm like, what do we do now? <laughs> what do we do now? Well, I'm going to feed her. Great. I think that would probably be good. We're going to nurse. We're not going to do formulas. Okay, let's do it. And when Rachel said, Mom, other side, I'm like, you've nursed long enough. Let's go. It's time to move on. But you, all of a sudden, you get that child home, and you're like, they're dirty. What do I do? The next step is to change them. And over the course of time, you start to grow that little life up. Discipleship is one beggar telling another younger beggar where he found bread and hanging out at the bread shop with him. You're going, I don't know that much. If you know anything more than the person you're dealing with, help them. God's called us to be his witnesses, not his lawyers. Witness just tells what's happened in their life. I don't have to have all of this training to be able to testify and mentor somebody else. So I've got to have a spiritual growth plan. I give generously. I serve my world. That's part of staying refreshed, keeping the hope alive. Here would be a third thing. Refuse to do life alone. You can't do it by yourself. Never underestimate the power of support. Especially for, for me in full-time ministry for all these years, I benefit with hanging out with Richard, hanging out with Nick, hanging out with Dustin. We do life together. My friend Benji and Tanya Parr were in the first service. I'm telling you, I've known Benji for 20 years. We do life together. When something's going on, hey, Benji, I need some help in this area. We've done life together. He called me this week. Dude, I'm working through something. Need to talk through my confusion. Mark, we've done this for years, buddy. And it's so helpful when you've got a friend that you go, if I call him, we're going to dialogue. So when you start to look going, I can't do it by myself. Being in accountability groups, being in a community group, being in a support group. That dude who came forward, Gordy, for prayer this morning. He's the one that just gave his life to Christ. He's battling addiction. Hey, stay with our recovery class, dude. It's going to be good for you. And some of you sitting here, you're going, man, I need support. Where do I go? And you know as well as I do, if you can stay in those kind of groups right there, there's other people that are coming out of brokenness just like you that maybe you can help. Maybe they can help you. Fourth thing with this, be this. Raise your ceiling. Raise your ceiling in life. You don't get what you deserve. You get what you expect and what you're aiming for. Aim for more. As you close out this year, start to aim for more in your spiritual journey. Aim for more in your family. Aim for more in life. Aim to be stronger, healthier, better than you've been in the past. A lot of people think that way. Well, you just get what you get. No, you get a lot of what you aim for and what you shoot for and what you're defining in your life. Look, we've got to aim for more. We've got to desire more. We've got to believe that God really does want to lead us into a favorable outcome. That God wants to use us to maybe reach and teach and train and help somebody else. That maybe whatever you've been battling, God wants to unlock that. And so this is not your traditional Christmas Eve message, but it's a necessary message. Because God wants you flooded with hope. He wants you knowing the hope of the gospel 24-7 and believing that it's enough. 
And if you've never surrendered and established that, I would highly encourage you, get the Lordship and Savior peace established. And then start to allow us to come alongside and disciple you. We want to help you. I pray.